you got to show up and prepare that prepare for that fight um, against your enemy in the best way you can. But you can never lose your moral compass. On this episode of the Northern Sentinels podcast, I speak with Austin Douglas, a 20-year veteran of the Canadian Army. Austin was one of the few black officers in the military, and he reflects on this as he walks me through his experience growing up in Montreal, life at the Royal Military College, and the challenges of multiple overseas deployments. After leaving the military, he found ways to continue to serve in defense industry, where he's a senior manager with General Dynamics Mission Systems. He's also active in helping the Canadian military with their culture change efforts. I'm thankful Austin agreed to share so many personal experiences and I learned a lot about a friend during this session. Without further delay, my conversation with Austin Douglas. Hey, Austin, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time on a, on a rainy holiday Monday to, to come over and, uh, and record this. Yeah, no problems. I appreciate you having me over. Uh, I think one of the, uh, the fascinating things about talking to anybody is always finding out about their family origins. Uh, and maybe you can start off by talking a little bit about uh, about your family, where your family comes from, and uh, and then I guess eventually you know sort of you know where where home is uh, for you before you you join the service. Yeah, sure. You know, born and raised. I guess I'll start with me. Born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, um, and, and uh, lived the early part of my childhood there. I was there alone um, originally because my brother was born um, before me in Grenada, the West Indies. That's where my parents are from, a small island uh, in the Caribbean, pretty far south when you look at it, as far south as Trinidad and Tobago, just on the north end of South America. And they were uh, born and raised there, met, uh, got married. My mother was, uh, I guess, a domestic worker, if you will, would sort of be a good title. And my dad was a, a mechanic. And uh, when my brother was born, he he, he kind of stayed in Grenada till he was six years old, and they emigrated to uh, to Montreal and uh, and had me and sort of started along, along that path. Um, it was it was a bit strange, I guess, because a lot of my family moved to New York City and uh, emigrated there. I think a lot of people went to the states, but for whatever reason, a small contingent just went up to Montreal, and uh, that's where we put down our roots. So being there, a bit isolated from family and cousins and aunts and uncles, but that's kind of the start of it for us. And, and you know, a number of people I've talked to um, have made the connections with their family origins about there was already somebody from our family who was in that location. And that's why that was really the, the main driver is we don't know much about Canada, whether it be Montreal, Toronto, um, you know, doesn't matter, but we knew somebody there. Was that was that the reason that the family? I don't family think there was. Montreal? I think we're like first generation there. I, th- I think at the time it's like, where can you get immigration status to, and where can you go settle, and where can you get a job? And I think my dad found a job as a mechanic. Um, did he know somebody there? Maybe I never really asked that question. To be honest with you. And how about yeah. New York then? So you said a lot of the families in New York. Yeah, I think, you know, talked about this before on my mother's side, there's like 13 brothers and sisters. And then the same thing with my dad's side, 12 brothers and sisters. The majority of them, if not 90% of them are in the States, in New York, a small number of them in Montreal, Toronto would be the metropolitan areas. But um, I think my dad just went to Montreal, found a job there, and that was it. But but probably a friend, I would say, would make sense. A friend would say, hey, come up, you know, they're, they're hiring here or they're doing this here. You can find a job or have a line on a job for you. And I think that's how that started. Yeah. Okay. Nothing okay. more intricate than that that I know of. Have you ever ever spent any time in Grenada? 
I have. It's um, you go back there. It's a small island. There's not much to do, right? So when I was a kid, I went back there probably every three, four years, and okay. um, going back to my grandmother's house, which seemed like a mansion at the time, right? You're not sort of used to space, and it's hard to compartmentalize what that means. But you're just in a house. You're out playing in the fields and out playing with your cousins and enjoying it for what it is. I think the last time I was there in twenty ten. It looked tiny. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're, you're sort of now living in Canada. You've been here for such a long time. You have your big house, um, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 square feet. Your kids have their own spaces and their own rooms. And families not congregated the same way as they as they were sort of in the, in those Caribbean days. Hmm. And you go back and like, wow, this place is tiny. Like, how did your mother do this? And how does, you know, 10 brothers and sisters uh, live in this one isolated space? But everybody shares a room. Everybody helps with the cooking. You know, you kind of make sense of it, right? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I've been there a number of times, but every time I go back, you know, last time I went with the kids, it's like, hmm, what are the kids going to do? You're kind of worried about them. I think in Canada, there's so much programming, so much for them to do, so many activities, not the same though, right? Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, I, I don't know if it may be, as you get older, do you, do you crave that, uh, that more of that simplicity or do you look at that and go, you know what? I don't really feel like that's, that's of interest to me. Yeah, not sure. I think when I look back to um, COVID and, you know, that probably be the first instance of the world slowing down and my son not being able to go to competitive sports and doing hockey three, four nights a week, you're like, wow, what do we do with our time? And how do you feel that in the confines of your home in your backyard? That was a bit of an adjustment. Do I crave that? I think I crave a little bit of quiet now, a little bit of simplicity to life yeah. as uh, as time goes by. And I think you probably get used to it. I kind of make the equation of when you're serving overseas and you kind of let go of all the amenities of uh, of home. You, you just make the mental adjustment, right? You go, you're sort of doing your work in the day, you have supper, then you kind of have movie night with the troops and, and then you read a book and you go to bed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of on that theme about, you know, how you spend your time, how did you spend your time as a, as a kid growing up in Montreal? Yeah, so I grew up in a place called NDG, Notre Dame, Notre Dame de Grasse, which is fairly close to downtown. Um, and as you know, no cell phones at the time and none of those other controls that parents have uh, have on us. And my mother was a housekeeper, as I said, during my uh, early childhood. And, and when I think of the summer now with our kids in summer and pre-programmed activities, whether it's soccer or hockey or March break camps, you name it, pretty much I was just out running the street, if you think of that. I think there's a, one of these like, YouTube skits of the wild things and kids just on their bikes and running the streets. That was exactly it. Get on your bike, go to the local park. Hopefully your buddies were there at the same time. Yeah. Or you just throw a ball on the lawn. And you, <laughs> yeah. you, you wait for them to show up. And then if they do and you get enough as a team, it's like, hey, run to so-and-so's house because we need a, a fifth so we can have five on five. And then you're just at the park playing box ball or baseball or soccer. And you're there till, you know, one or two, go home, have a lunch, come back to the field and uh, just told your mother you'll be back sometime at dark. And that was that was my childhood. Did you have any sort of connection to service, not necessarily military service in the family? Um, or anything in your youth that would maybe have planted an early seed about joining the, uh, the army? I guess the earliest seed would have been um, in going to church. We went to a church called St. Matthew's. And I think in all those um, church spaces, they have these floor halls. And, you know, in, in most of them, in St. Matthew's Church and different churches, we went through Trinity Church. They had the Cubs that were there, the Cubs and the Scouts, on like a Tuesday night or a Friday night. And, 
you know, the leader's part of the congregation. It's like, hey, Austin should come to Cubs and have something to do on Tuesday nights and be busy. And that was probably the first start of putting on a uniform and putting whatever that thing around your neck is, the scarf, and and collaring it up and and being part of a small team and having your teepee tent and getting engaged in that way. That was probably the first instance of, I don't want to call it paramilitary, whatever they call those small young kids groups, but yeah. you know, Cub Scouts and Ventures, I did all that. So you're, you're spending a lot of time sort of uh, outside as a kid, a lot of autonomy. Did that continue from, you know, when you were really young, like through into teenage years? Did you, um, you know, you connected with the, the scout program? I mean, what did the sort of the lead up to uh, military service look like? Then? Yeah, a lot of autonomy. You know, um, my parents divorced as early as I could uh, remember. So I never lived with my dad, just uh, lived with my mother, my brother and I. Um, my mother was a housekeeper, had long hours, sort of out of the work, out, out to work early in the morning, back, not late at night, but 4 or 5 p.m., just normal working hours, and we just kind of figured it out ourselves. So from Cubs to Scouts to um, Air Cadets, joined all those, researched those, found them by myself. Um, so I did Air Cadets, and then, you know, as you know, and the small secret, did uh, <laughs> did a small bit of time, probably three months or so as a sapper um, at, the, uh, at the reserve unit, which was once again adjacent to my uh, high school, Westmount High. I think it was 2-3 Field Squadron right on St. Catherine there. So I did that for a small period of time, and uh, I guess it was just all part of being part of the group, liking the outdoors, liking the adventure, liking the change of scenery, doing the summer camps. So totally, you know, independent with choosing that path up to the point of joining RMC and joining the military in that way. Yeah. yeah. And for those that don't know, a, a sapper is a yeah. term for a for a, a field engineer, a combat engineer in the in the military. Um, so. And I don't know if I was really a sapper, though, because I think I only had the cornflake. So okay. I'm just going to say that, you know, I joined the unit, <laughs> got the kit, um, and was starting on that journey. And, and I think, so high school goes up to grade 11. And then I think I must have did in my second year of SAGEP, probably going to use it to pay for university because I got accepted to Concordia, McGill, and, and then RMC. And then once I got accepted to RMC, then had a quick retirement from the sapper regiment and right. started my uh, my years it's okay we'll, in the reg force we will we'll definitely claim you as a as a sapper <laughs> that's where it all started right yep. the magic the <laughs> fertilizer well yeah you, you you do wonder right i mean it isn't so much i think about uh, about especially at that stage it's not so much about you know my infantry or what my core branch is but you just get a bit of a taste for what that might look like the yeah. The, the the culture the the service um, and was that something that you were you were naturally drawn to because you haven't got service in your family where you just sort of feel like you were naturally drawn to it and and what was that transition like from being a civilian into uh, the military I think naturally drawn and um, pop culture if you will whatever movies were at the time Full Metal Jacket Platoon um, Taps or Stripes you know yeah commies. I think that's always appealed to me and it just resonated being part of a team belonging. And I do remember when I, I think I went to Long Point when I was in the reserves and got the uniform and came home and laid it all out. And, you know, when you reflect back, it's probably the first time you think of belonging, belonging to something bigger, putting on a uniform, joining a group. Uh, those always seem to resonate for, for one reason or another. But I look back on my life now and, you know, having a quick chat with a friend the other day of, where I am now, especially with retirement and where I've gotten to, and I could never have 
pictured how I got there. And, and, you know, if you look at this and say, this is success, it's like, wow, kind of figured it out, but it was more organic than anything else. My mother wasn't overly helpful in, in guiding any of those decisions or providing advice. And I went to this, to the unit as a, as a sapper and joined, right? And when you look back now and you think, okay, here's a guy who went to CJEP, going to university, should join as an officer, kind of random how it all kind of fixed itself, right? Had it probably went to McGill, it probably would have just been an NCM and stayed in the unit and didn't really understand the tie between university and officer and, you know, the way he was promoted back then. But pretty, pretty organic in sort of how I got to uh, navigate that path and had the alignment or affiliation of wanting to be part of a uniform group and, and kind of stuck with me. And what are the sort of the initial impressions of, uh, of your, of your mom, uh, your siblings, uh, your community about joining the military? Yeah, my mom was very religious, you know, um, growing up through elementary school and high school, I went to church, I think every Sunday till I graduated high school. I remember getting certificates for, you know, perfect attendance. And my mother's message would be like, this is in God's hands. So, you know, I think it was fairly smart's probably not the right word, but aware or make good conscious decisions. And, and they weren't negative, you know, joining scouts or joining cubs, um, joining air cadets were all good organizations to be a part of. So that was, I think, gave her a bit of ease. And I think when I went to RMC and said I was going away to school, I think she was proud of the fact of, you know, going to university and sort of first of that generation of our family, the first cousins that really were from parents that immigrated from the Caribbean and, and, and joining an organization or being part, being, being part of an organization, a structured organization, and then going to a university in Canada was a good thing. I think probably more on the friend side was a bit of the surprise of leaving Montreal and, you know, and, um, having the opportunity to go to a McGill or Concordia and be part of that group and that demographic and still having a bunch of fun with a very multicultural group and, and then going to RMC, which is seen as a very, uh, not a diverse group, if you will, a, no. a white army is essentially what I was joining, yeah. right? And, and everything that they understood from that, from TV, and I guess at that time would be, you know, Canadian forces doing peacekeeping. And they just wondered where I fit in that uh, in that institution. Well, they always knew I did Cubs and Scouts. I think that was a step change, right, of now I'm leaving and, and going somewhere else. And yeah, that took a bit of, I wouldn't say adjusting to, but communication with friends, trying to understand that decision-making to go there. Yeah. I mean, Cubs and Scouts are community organizations. They might have a national structure, but they're community-based. Yeah. They're around the corner from your house, right? And if you're in a community, they kind of serve that community and they get kids from that area to join. So you're still within within your group of friends that are down the block or two streets away. But when you sort of get on a plane or get on a bus and go to a national institution, that's, uh, that's different. Right. So where you, you arrive at RMC, I mean, you basic training, arrive at RMC. And so what is that like now? It's not just, it's not just university. Yeah. It's your step into adulthood, right? It is where you work, uh, being your studies. It's where you socialize. It's, it's a bit of sort of a place to come of age. What was that like? I would say, you know, when you leave Chilliwack and you, if I have it right, you take a plane to Trenton and then you get on this two-hour bus ride all in the middle of night and it's a bit of theater, right? You, yeah. <laughs> you get up on the parade square and there's these people in these white pith helmets and 
everybody's screaming at you and you make your way to this dormitory and you have no idea where you are. And then finally you wake up. Um, I think all that is, I think I signed up for all that theater. So that was good. That was, that was fun. That was kind of everything you expected it to be. As you start going through it, I wouldn't say it was overly conscious, but you then start getting access to, you know, once you start allowed to talk to people in the meal hall, people from different parts of the country, Nova Scotia, Manitoba, out West, coming together and figuring every story of why they're here. As I quickly realized, there's not a lot of people from urban centers at the time from Montreal or Toronto or BC mm. at, uh, at military college. I'd probably say to myself, you know, Austin's independent uh, analysis, I think there's probably a lot more opportunity there, or you see a lot more opportunity to do a lot in those metropolitan cities as you do smaller communities. So, you know, that's probably the first noticeable difference, I would say, that I got from RMC. And then the other big obvious one, you know, uh, being a person of uh, color, a black Canadian, you know, in my year of 95, I was the, you know, one black student in, in the school. And then when you look to the larger uh, demographic, there's one other black student in the school, Michelle Robertson, who was uh, a year ahead of me in five squadrons. So there was two black students in a school of, I wouldn't know what the numbers are at the time, the class, seven, 800, maybe a bit less at the time. At, at the college? Yeah, at the college. Yeah, that's probably right before the other colleges. Closed. Yeah, right before the, that's probably, yeah, yeah probably close. So I think if there's an adjustment there, that was it. And that was very visual and that was very conscious. And, um, but I would say, you know, in getting through those early years at RMC, much like anybody else, you just want to fit into the crowd and, and be part of the organization and, and not have that be something that gets attention, positive or negative. You just kind of want to blend in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Upon reflection, do you, you think the institution had any sort of understanding of the unique situation that you and Michelle were uh, in as, as two black Canadians in a, in a population, a student population of, of 800? Yeah, there's, you know, this is the, it's, I'll try to parse it because there's what I knew then and what I know now, Yeah, right, which are two different things and how I would show up then and how I would show up now um, and advice I would give people that are there now. There was no accommodation is probably the, the wrong word, but there's no discussion um, at all with respect to, you know, maybe day two or day three or week one, you know, a padre or a director of cadets or anybody that's sort of in what we would say now would be a cultural officer or pay atten- paying attention to diversity, say, Austin, welcome to RMC. You might notice that you're the only person of color in your class. There's only two people of color in the school. Um, if you, you know, need support or help dealing with those, help, help, help dealing with that. The reality. Yeah. The reality of it. There's, you know, there's a Padre here to talk to, there's this person here to talk to, or you can go speak to anybody. That was never brought up in any, uh, in any, at all. Right. It was just, you were there and you figured it out for yourself. And, and, you know, to this day, as you know, Michelle Robertson's one of my best friends and obviously I gravitate for obvious reasons. Hmm. Um, I think the, what Michelle and I got out of it at the time, what RMC was trying to do at the time was, you know, increase diversity. And I think obviously they were great to have us there. So that was probably my first introduction with being part of, you know, social media and posters and helping recruiting, you know, not very representative of the school, but, you know, Michelle and I would be in, in a poster with an, another Asian girl and two white students and, 
welcome to RMC. But, you know, looked very diverse on a, on a poster of five cadets, but it was not accurate. We did not represent 20 to 25% of the, uh, of the student body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we talked previously about this and I, you know, I was completely sort of ignorant to, you know, the impacts that, um, the outside world would maybe have on you. And, and we'd spoken about, um, about Somalia and about the, the murder of Shadana Roan in Somalia and the, the impact that that had on you. Cause you, what year were you, were you in? Third year. And I think that's when the schools all merged in. Like, um, I think CMR closed and we got a bunch of their imports in. And and then you sort of get your annual imports of um, of RMC coming in, right? Yeah, yeah. So, how did that like? How did that how did that affect you? How did uh, that affect your relationship with you know back family back home and friends? Um, yeah, it's always a bit tough to talk about. Um, I would say this, you know, in year one and two of RMC, you're definitely in underclassmen you're you're navigating your way through right by year three you know you're i guess it would be a junior right before year four and be be a senior and i had um i was fortunate to have, to have some leadership positions as a rook agent in third year and a section commander in the second semester of third year so i would say more aware of who i was as a cadet um the ability to articulate a bit more and, and just conscious of how i would p- participate in the social discussion at school so then, yeah, clearly there was, you know, when the Airborne Regiment was in Somalia, they killed the um, the young teenager, Shadina Roan. And that was the first time that race had come up um, in a very conscious way at RMC. And, I, you know, when we look at demographics and cultures and subcultures, you know, there's male and female at RMC, for sure, right? Um, and then I was a subculture of one of one, a black cadet at RMC. And, you know, a lot of discussion at the time was, there was controversy about the Airborne Regiment. What they did was, I don't think anybody thought it was right, but I think people thought they were, they were doing a job and maybe that, you know, detainee got what he deserved or, um, or this is just part of being on a deployed mission and these things happen. And I think that was the first conscious reflection of me of how can the Canadian forces deploy somewhere to help on a peacekeeping operation and kill someone, a non-combatant, right? And that was the first time I thought about whether RMC was the place for me, whether I wanted to stay there, whether I could survive in this culture, because debates in class were people that were condoning it. And I wouldn't say condoning it, but, you know, apologetic for it or, or trying to explain their way of how this could take place or the behavior of the airborne regiment and other things that were happening at the time with slashing tires on the parade square and, you know, the the whole circumstances that went around it. So when the airborne regiment got disbanded, like I did not lose an ounce of sleep, right? It was like, but for me, there was no, there was no sympathy, right? But there was a lot of sympathy from others. And, And I think being there and going back home and having friends of color, you know, them trying to reconcile how I could be part of an organization that did this and, and killed innocent people, especially people of color, and make sense of that. So that probably my first reflection of race and culture in the calf and struggling with my place in it and, uh, and seeing if I belonged long term there. And I guess I would say it went so far as, you know, with family and friends back home, thinking of leaving the organization at the time. And just doing something else, but I was encouraged to stay and 
you know, told I was there for a different reason and, you know, the path was mine to navigate and all good things that peers and adults and friends would tell you. So I stayed. Yeah. So you were really independent as a youth. Did you have any, um, did you have any mentors when you were at RMC or in your sort of early days? Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think that was a thing back then. I just navigated that um, by myself with a good group of friends, you know, friends that you have up until today, but there's no mentors there that spoke to me in any way that helped me understand things in a, in a, in a more complex way. No officer came up to me and talked to me about, you know, the events of the time and the impact that they were having. And I didn't bring it up as well, right? You know, I, I shared with you a letter I sent to the CDS last year talking about events like that. Like, I didn't know how to look for that, didn't know how to ask for that. And I think at the time, people would probably say it was gaslighting to an, to an extent. If you brought up race, to be like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no issue. Look, you're here, you're at RMC, you're doing well. Like, why are you making an issue out of this? So I don't think I was armed for it. I don't think the organization was prepared to have that discussion. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, up until 2020, as odd as it may seem, I, I think I navigated much of my journey in the CAF internally as it pertained to leadership opportunities, progression, growth, and definitely in, I would say, my first deployment to Bosnia, understanding culture other than our own differently and being empathetic towards that. And okay, so you're now, you finish our RMC. You end up uh, in your first, your first unit, uh, and you have a deployment to Bosnia. So, I mean, what, what is that? Maybe first exposure as a commissioned officer now, whether it be in the regular army or uh, on an overseas operation. How is that? Yeah, I think that's where you start getting to shaping who you are as an individual. I think if there's anything that the Canadian Forces affords, it is the ability to see the world, um, and that's sort of the five star resorts, but. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the corners of the world that that um, that need our help. So while I was OC Recce, you know, thanks to the good old dragoons, they took on the uh, the Recce task uh, in, in Bosnia. So I went over there as an LO to Banja Luka at um, MND Southwest, so MND Multinational Division Division Headquarters. Yeah, which was um, so. What does it? What does an LNO do? So, you know, we we're part of, uh, I think we're part so of a liaison officer. Liaison officer yeah. as part of a British contingent. And we had um, company groups in different parts of the country, you know, Coralici, Javar, all these names that are coming back to me. So my job was just to, you know, understand what we're doing, these far off quadrants of, uh, of uh, Bosnia, sort of understand those, that, those daily reportings. And just made sure you know we coordinated them back to the British uh, the British headquarters. But it also did afford me was the opportunity carte blanche with my driver, um, you know, to just travel the country, right? Visit the Polish uh, battle group, the Canadian battle group, the British British battle group, and just see all parts of it. Once again, pretty autonomous, right? Just me and my driver with the with a radio going to Tuzla, like you know, visiting the U.S. counterparts in MND North. I think they were all over the place. And I think there you have, you know, visually you see the way, the, especially in a war-torn country, the way people are and how they're just trying to survive. And I think there's an empathy to that, to know that you're there to, to help, but you go back to this first world country called Canada with everything you need, you know, running water and schools and infrastructure. So I think for me, it was pretty 
you know, the visual impact for me was, was pretty big and sort of having that appreciation for the way others live and having that sense of empathy that, um, you know, for the grace of where we're born, you know, our life path is, uh, is a little bit written. And I'd say the biggest impact is when they did the Kosovo bombings and that would be in 93, I think. Uh, 99. Not, yeah, sorry, 99. Yeah, yeah, 99. Yeah, because yeah, I probably got there in, yeah, I think April 99, right? Somewhere around there. Uh, yeah, I was I was in Macedonia when yeah. that started. So when you see the migration of people, you know, on a road with their life on their backs, that is pretty humbling. You know, and you're in a Jeep with water and rations and you just want to give all of it away, right, to do whatever you can. I think that was the first instance of a real humility of, wow, you know, we're trying to do as much as we can and I'm glad Canadians are there helping. I think we're sort of known for that, but that would sort of be the first impact on me of being deployed overseas and seeing the world for all it is. Right. Hmm. Um, like this is the, the reason you joined the army, um, probably not the, the human side of it, but the actual uh, adventure side. Did you sort of get that uh, ability to scratch that itch a little bit on this this deployment? On the tour, I think so. I had good flexibility. I was ended up being great friends with the aide de camp to the uh, to the general. So it was the ability to get on the chopper and you know as he visited theater and do all those cool stuff. And they had the British SAS there and sort of see what those guys do. And at the time we were going after uh, the acronym is PIFWIX. I'm not even sure what that stands for. People of interest. Uh, uh, yeah, people indicted for war crimes, I think. Okay, yeah. 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 So, you know. For the, the trials in The Hague. Yeah. Exactly. So, understanding that, I think that sense of adventure, would have wanted to go through as O.C. Iraqi, 100%. Um, didn't get that opportunity. Would have great other leadership opportunities on, on future tours after. But I think that itch got scratched. I, I definitely enjoyed, you know, navigating and being out on the front edge and seeing different parts of the world and seeing different militaries. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Okay. So you get back from your first overseas deployment and, uh, and what do you return to? What is, what's the next thing, the next step in the, in the army for you? What happened to me? I think at the time I came back and I had applied to Concordia to go to, um, start doing my master's of public policy and administration. Um, and I wanted to go back to the RMR Regiment, which is once again on St. Catherine Street. Right. Just down from my yeah. high school. Once again, all, all the familiar things. And I ended up getting posted to St. Jean to do the leadership uh, school and train officers there and spent uh, three years of my life, three or four years of my life there. I don't know if any, I don't know if to say in hindsight, I think, I think all good postings and all good leadership opportunities that the, that the CAF gives to you as young junior officers are good. So, that was the the next assignment for me after uh, after my first tour. Enjoyed that, you know, sort of framing young minds and uh, and and helping them pass. I remember when I went through phase training, you know, it's infantry phase training, and and that's always a struggle, right? Phase two, phase three, and what I'd say we had these old school sergeants and and warrant officers whose job at the time I think was to make life as painful and as difficult on young officers as I can make it in a good way. I think it was there to test your mettle, right? And, you know, it was horrible, those phases, right? It was just, just you know, day one, you know, you're, it's kind of raining and you're trying to like not get wet and then you have a platoon warrant that just makes you do a leopard crawl through a mud rut and get get dirty on day one so you're not worried about it. Right. Like, oh, my God. I think we slowly started to turn the corner of, you know, my mindset was everybody that's on basic training 
should have the ability to pass. And let's see how many we can get through the system as opposed to how many we can fail. Right. Mm. So not that was some, not that that was some nouveau thought, but that's the way I kind of approached it. And you still had the same numbers. I think that fail in the end, right. Whatever the numbers end up being just not the right thing for some people or, um, or it is, but you know, there's a story I'll tell in the back end of this when, when we get to some other stuff. And, you know, what I would say is when you're training young officers, as you would know, you know, being a, a deacon at RMC, you are having a lasting impact of things that you can't see now, but that will come back to you years, uh, years later. So enjoyed that. I think I did a, I think I did a pretty good job there. Um, and yeah, spent, uh, spent three or four years there before I went back to, uh, to regimental duty. Did it, did it come naturally to you? I mean, you've, we've talked about your independence and, uh, you know, whether it be uh, as, a, as a young man in Montreal, uh, you know, given this role in Bosnia, where you have a ton of independence, um, did that ability or that sort of inherent independence uh, make it easier, make it tougher to, to connect as a mentor uh, or a coach um, at, uh, at basic training for, for young Canadians joining? I would say yes. Like in hindsight now, the stories that um, of people that I've crossed paths with would say yes. I didn't know it at the time. I was always just being me, which is a fairly relaxed and easygoing guy and showing up as who I am. I never put on a character, never put on a game face, never put on an instructor face. I just showed up as me, was interactive with the, um, with the, with the young officers and hard and serious when I needed to be, you know, like I said, here's the course, here's a curriculum. Some of it's easy. Some of it's difficult. Some of it's very difficult. Some of it's a mental challenge. just presented as that, as it was. And I think that's always stuck with me. Um, I've always had this general fairness towards others. Um, and coming, being a person of color, I don't want, not, I don't want to say this, not that other people treat, treat, other people unfairly i would just say i was always responsive to just see people for who they for who they were but at the same time you know probably putting through a couple thousand students through um through basic officer training i could probably count on one hand the number of black officers that went through and i can only remember two Mm. so like saying the one hand is kind of being generous yeah yeah okay so you, you finish up your time as an instructor um, at basic officer training. And then, I mean, I guess we get into sort of more of the Afghanistan years yeah. now, right? So what is that? Uh, what's the sort of, sort of the first brush with uh, with Afghanistan for you? Yeah, so I, I think, so when I was in St. Jean, 9-11 happens, of course. And, you know, remember looking at the TV saying, wow, I guess I'll be in Afghanistan one day. Not Just not knowing what that means, Right. Um, so I go back to three hours show with, uh, Colonel Don Denny as the, uh, as a CEO who, you know, is a ranger and, uh, turned the light battalion into a ranger battalion. So, so you would say, right. you know, and, uh, probably back in the, in the mold of everything that you want to do, right. As a company to IC, I think I did, um, rifle company, combat support company. And then it was an admin company when we ended up going overseas to, uh, to, uh, to Afghanistan, which what would be Camp Julian at the time, Kings, just down from Kings Palace or Queens Palace. Okay. Can't remember the exact location. And what does that look like? What did Camp Julian look like compared to where you were 
like living in, in Bosnia, as an example? Yeah, I think, you know, the early days of, forgive me if I get the names wrong, Colonel Ian Hope and the Pinterest Patricias going over and doing those initial deployments of war fighting. We got into that first structured compound, the very big footprint and project out of there. And I think Canada was trying to find its way how to best participate in the Afghanistan war and whether we're going to be in these small pockets or whether we're going to stage from a big camp. And nobody knew what what it needed to be at the time. And I remember at the time when we deployed as a light battalion, there was a big controversy of, you know, whether it should be three air zero that goes or one air zero that goes because they have all the vehicles and et cetera, et cetera. So ended up going there. And, you know, the the most significant thing that happened, because we've been on a number of peacekeeping operations uh, as an army before. And, and while there were events in the, you know, I think Medak Pocket and the Patricias and stuff in Bosnia, they definitely weren't reported on. And these are stories that I didn't hear about or, or know about, but, you know, Early in the Afghanistan tour, you know, a Jay Faco, friend of mine, and uh, uh, um, Sergeant Short and Coral Berenfinger, right. I think his name was, yep. um, you know, had casualties in the in the Altus um, vehicle that was struck by an IED. And that was the first instance of understanding that, wow, you know, friends and people that you see every day can go out on a mission and, and maybe not come back. And that brought a serious tone to to the um, to the mission of what we're there and, and what we're doing and that we're fighting for the first time in, in, in my service uh, an enemy that was persistent and, and was going to fight back in unconventional ways. Like how, how did the leadership at the time deal with that? Or was there any sort of effort to, to explain the significance of this? Or did people just sort of look at it and go, well, I guess this is a situation we're in now and we just kind of keep moving forward? Yeah, was, you know, once again, it's it's Austin Douglas then versus Austin Douglas, the company commander, and the Canadian forces. X years removed from those early, early casualties, it, it was a big event, right? You know, probably good to say things slowed down or stopped. We paid a lot of attention to making sure casualties were treated properly and trying to figure out how you inform Mexican, try to figure out how you repatriate them, try to figure out how you continue on with missions. I remember at that time, then they brought all the vehicles from 1RCR over to Theta, and we started training on those to provide ourselves more protection and being very reflexive to what was taking place because we were learning, you know, when you, you fast forward to probably a couple of years later in Austin Douglas, the company commander and having casualties and not to be, I don't think we're being callous about it, but we understood the casualties are part of the framework of a war fighting, right. which was a change of posture of, Send the casualties home very respectfully and, and doing everything that we we would normally do and repeat, repatriating them honorably. But like we were back on the mission seconds later, if, if you will, after a Kazovac, because that's the theater of warfare we're in. But at the time for the initial, you know, um, Camp uh, Camp Julian and the initial casualties, I think we're figuring out that process, right? I ended up being on the Jows Valley Board of Inquiry, you know, going through the process of the very deliberate did everybody die green? Why were they there? Did all were all those formalities in place? All those things got automated, if you will, at some point, or mm. very streamlined as we learned and matured and understood how we have to do that and repatriate casualties back honorably, but get on with the mission. But so I think it was I think everybody was learning that process and and sort of leading on your friends and your peer group of you know dealing with a friend that got injured or dealing with NCMs that um, that got, got killed in war and, mm-hmm. and moving forward in a good way 
I think you realize that you got to move forward and you got to be good because you're there to do the job. And I think internally it's about trying to find that level of comfort and, and understand did you grieve enough for is now the time to grieve or do you grieve later? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I guess it's probably not so much about, um, you know, diminishing the incident at all. Uh, you just become the muscle memory about the things that need to happen. Uh, yeah. It just gets deepened and you can still be respectful about, you know, dealing with those casualties. Uh, but you probably move on a little more quickly because the system is able to handle it um, more quickly than it, it was initially. And that's probably a good way to describe it. What I'd say is the the system does what it's designed to do and takes that takes that. I don't want to say burden, but um, I, I will say you know a bit of the burden off of the leadership. You know, as a, as an OC in theater years later. If the OC is left with all that administration and all that mental trauma and administrative trauma, it is a bit debilitating. You know, you sort of need to press on with the troops that are still there and still looking to get home safely and still need your leadership. And that's where your focus needs to be. Now you were Company 2IC in Kabul? Company 2IC in Kabul. Okay. So now you go down, a number of years later, you go down to Kandahar, which is a very different environment uh, as a company commander. And what were your initial impressions, having already had Afghan time uh, in Kabul? What were your initial impressions as a commander um, in in Kandahar? Yeah, you know, I could go on. We can go on forever talking about uh, that tour. I would say we. I'll back up a little bit. We we're in Fort Irwin doing some training with you know the group that went out before, and they're they're putting you through these exercises of these days that you think you're never going to have in Afghanistan. And that's true. Some had been there before, you know, and some have, and you're like, ah, this would never happen, you know. But I I will credit our training system to say, you know, everything that they did out there, well, it didn't happen verbatim, you know, the um, the same sequence of events were there. I remember in training, we had this crazy day of casualties and war fighting and you name it. I'm like, IEDs. IEDs, and it's like three, four, five ideas. I'm like, this would never happen on, on an ordinary day. But lo and behold, I had a day where we're doing a root clearance in Afghanistan where engaging the enemy, six IEDs, you know, QRFs compromised, like no assets left, right? So just to uh, just to kind of put that in context. So all that to say is when we went, when I went to um, back as a company commander in uh, with Connor Mikowski Task Force 110, we were we were war fighting, you know, um, from day one. And I also tell the story when we, we did the TAC recce, I think in early December, and it went out on three patrols um, with the different platoons. You know, one, uh, two of the lieutenant platoon commanders took me out, and one, and one of the sergeants took me out. I think the the officer was away on uh, on leave, so I'd come back. It was mid Christmas, just watching the news, and then one week, one of the patrol commanders that took me out. I think Lieutenant Null might have been the name at the time, um, dies in an IED. I'm like, wow, that's kind of, you know, eye-opening. And then, you know, a week later, the, the sergeant that took me out on a patrol dies in an IED. So I'm at home, you know, just, it's like, where am I going? How did I get here? Why am I still in? You know, this, this, doesn't, uh, this, doesn't, make, uh, this doesn't make sense. Anyways, you quickly put that behind you. You know, I get to Afghanistan, I'm in CAF, you know, ready to deploy out stage the day before. And um, 
another casualty happens in Nakone, this village I was going to, okay. where I was going to serve. And uh, it was Wayne Niven was the OC at the time. And they had a, you know, I would be guessing at the number, but around five KIAs, if you will, at least, and a number of uh, other injuries. So In his company? In his company. Yeah, okay. Right. So the day before I'm supposed to go, like I said, there was another KIA. And that was the first brush of anxiety I've ever had in my 20-year career. I was like, where am I going? How did I get stuck in this position? This is crazy, you know. So that lasted about an hour, went to bed, and then then you're just... Then you're just in the machine, right? You're just like, drop your barrack box here, get your rifle, get on the chopper, and you uh, and you go out. And I think, so I was the third company to rip in. So the battle group had been there, you know, doing their business. Charles Company had been there with that. So you're the third company of the new group to arrive and start to operate in Correct, in yeah. I was, I was the last one in. So Got it. the last third to, uh, to come in. So they were fighting, you know, they were, um, they had some casualties of, uh, wounded in action, no KIs yet, I don't believe. But the first KIA we had, um, as a Canadian contingent was back up in Kabul, Colonel Jeff Parker. Right. I think, right? Yeah. Jeff on was the, on a, a recce, was he not? On a recce. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking people are dining like up in Kabul still, which was considered very safe at the time, right? Compared to Kandahar. So I think for six, seven months, you're just in that mindset that you're uh, you're on a war footing and uh, and you're there to fight. And, and for Bravo Company, that was our experience. You know, we um, we had a compound in Soja, which was where the the company headquarters were. It was a very big compound. The guns ended up showing up there. Had uh, an engineering uh, regiment assigned to us. You know, a good chunk of them were there. And parts of the NSC where there was a big staging point. It had three company, three platoon positions. Um, in different villages and you know essentially they were fighting every day and as as you know our uh, our company took uh, a lot of wounded in action and uh and a lot of kias as well and we had a pretty close relationship with our engineers as i think all infantry uh, companies do we lost uh, a number of engineers in uh, in ieds two sergeants in fact yeah so pretty poignant you know Tough to speak about, and I think as we engage in this, it's, this is something that we're not used to speaking about, or, or not me. Kind of just take that experience and, and bottle it away, and, mm. and when you when you do revisit it, and I think there's good stories to tell there. It, it is a process to to go through because when I came back from tour, I never dealt with it. You kind of just talk to your peers and have some drinks at the mess and, and get on with life. And, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but. I'm not sure if we kind of prepare our officers or help them kind of disengage from the experiences they have. I think as leaders, we put a lot on their shoulders and expect them to get through it. But um, yeah, it, it is a big impact for sure. And I remember when I'm getting my MSM, you know, as I told you and others, it's like we'd give back all those those medals for sure to have, you know, everybody come back, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you wear that stuff with a heavy heart because it says a lot of good things about Austin Douglas and what he did over there, but you know, in the moment, you know, your good Canadians sacrificing their lives and they would do it. They do it again, a hundred percent that I know, but you still got to sort of live that experience. But so very poignant war fighting every day. Um, a lot of wounded in action, a lot of KIAs. Yeah. Still trying to process and, and sort of move through that even as we speak. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, um, how can it not be a, 
incredibly formative experience in, in somebody's life. And you're so you're overseas for in this uh, in this combat zone for you know six seven plus months, and you come back home, right? So how how do you what do you end up doing when you come back home? You're still in the army. Uh, yeah. You've you've had this an experience that most not not even just most Canadians most humans will never have. Um, so what do you end up doing when you come home now? Yeah, I, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll back up one because I, I do want to tell a story and close a loop, and then I'll talk about coming back home because it's you know it's it's um, I retired quickly after coming back, okay. right? Um, uh, you know, within months. But I know when we're talking about culture, and I'm not sure if we if it's good to talk about now or if we want to talk about yeah, it later. Yeah, no, but, absolutely. You know, I, I do we remember talking about the the struggles in '93 of of. Um, the Somali that was killed, you know, the, the yep. teenager by the, uh, the airborne regiment. And, and I do remember as a point of leadership over there in dealing with insurgents and, and detainees that we caught and, and having the ability as an officer to, to influence that. One thing that was very conscious for me was how we were going to treat, um, detainees. Right. Cause I think even in our, in our verbiage, you know, when we're taking KIAs and wounded in action, the troops get impacted by that for sure, right? And they want to fight back. In in uh, they want to fight back, right? As as anybody as anybody would, and and so would I. And as you try to navigate the rules of engagement and engage in you know armed or unarmed combatants, um, which you're allowed to do, it's it's precious in trying to navigate that. But whenever we caught detainees, they would be brought back to uh, to Camp Soja, where, where I was, and sort of brought through that process before they'd be brought back to, uh, to CAF. And the point of emphasis I made and, and always being aware of, you know, being deployed in operations, catching them is like detainees will be respected. You know, they will be treated in accordance with, you know, the, um, Geneva laws of armed conflict and, and make sure that, you know, they're fed and they're given water and they're treated humanely, et cetera, et cetera. And I made a point to visit, you know, them and, and see, you know, how they were and made sure to visit them as they left and make sure they were treated the same way. And the only point I make about that, especially when we talk sort of 2020 and beyond with sort of living in COVID and calf dealing with culture, it's the ability now as a leader, so much more aware of myself, so much, you know, more assertive and the ability to influence and have impact, right. To provide the calf, you know, with um, culture and diversity and help prevent strategic failure in that instance. Would that have happened without me there? No, we've learned a lot as a, as a force by then, right? And, and as a culture and sort of learn how to treat detainees and there aren't many black officers in the RCR or in the infantry as, as far as I can remember. So I'm not saying what I did was above and beyond what anybody else would have done. All I'm just trying to articulate, I was very conscious in the moment that everyone's going to be treated respectively and everyone's going to be treated humanely. Cause even then, you know, when we, when we anticipated having a curfew or cause you know, IEDs at night, troops would still be, you know, these people need to learn this and these people need to learn that. But it's like, these are Afghans and they have a name and we're here to help. And as impactful as, and stressful as it is here on us with taking casualties and KIAs, like that is the core tenant that cannot escape you. Right. Otherwise you lose the morality that you have of why you're there, right? And in the end, you're there to help, mm. right? You're there to help Afghans. And are we fighting an enemy? 100%. But 
But as Canadians and as a, as a Western society, you know, we're there to do that in a certain way. And sure, they're using IEDs and they're using, you know, other methods of engaging us in warfare. But that's what they have, right? If Trophy armed them with C7s and aircraft and artillery, they would fight that way. So you got to show up and prepare, that, prepare for that fight um, against your enemy in the best way you can. But you can never lose your moral compass. So, so all this, I just want to touch on that. And, you know, I, I think that will sort of frame when I think about culture in the calf moving forward, sort of early in retirement and sort of post-retirement in, in COVID and, and calf struggle with culture and identity. But uh, coming back, all the things that I signed up for, it's like record between commander, company 2IC, company commander, great job. So now I'm going to go to Toronto and have a chance to be a CEO. But Austin Douglas is exhausted. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you, you sort of sense... Uh, exhausted probably on all levels, physically, emotionally, physically, mentally. Physically, emotionally, right. mentally. Yeah. And like I, you know, I think as we sort of understood from a calf, no ability to, there's no release valve there to let the pressure out, right? It's like you're doing great work and there's more of that to come. And like get him another, you know, type A job so he gets right. the right PER. Um, so Eric Pelicano was the career manager at the time. It's like, Eric, I'm going to do staff school, but I'm not moving. I'm going home and I'll do it through distance learning. Right. I don't know if they're considered, you know, priority A or priority B now, how that's viewed. Um, but at that point it just didn't matter. I was, I was exhausted, was not prepared for another move Hmm. and just needed a bit of stability. Had two kids. My daughter was, you know, I, I went home early from training at Fort Irwin had my daughter and done deployed, right? And in and, and all those ramp up years, my son was five and just needed to, uh, to let the pressure valve out. So serendipitously, a company called Talus um, reached out to me. Th- friend through a friend said, hey, we're looking for some project managers. You know, are you, it was almost 20 years to the day. Like, what do you think about retiring? Hadn't entered my mind. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. I had gone back to school and, and did some post-grad. I'd gotten my MBA. So maybe subconsciously, I was always learning and trying to think about what the next step would be. But um, the ability to collect a very small pension and and get paid what I was getting paid as a, as a major made the uh, once again made the pretty independent leap without much um, consultation of even family or, or or friends. It was pretty internal. Of this is what's good for Austin, and, and this is what I'm going to do next, and put in a letter of uh, resignation and. Uh, Got that ball rolling. What was the reaction of the uh, of the forces? I mean, we're going through a. Uh, I'm still saying we, right? I've yeah, been yeah, out a year. Yeah. I'm still saying we. Uh, the forces is going through a you know a pretty significant challenge with recruiting and retaining people. Um, and what was your experience in in that leaving? In terms of was there an effort to retain you? Um, how to how was that managed by leadership, or was it managed by leadership? Yeah, it wasn't managed by the leadership, and that's not a that's not a that's not a knock. I think once again, it's, it's who we were as a force at the time. You know, hindsight twenty not hindsight, but I think in Austin Douglas, in sort of what we know about culture now, getting out post Afghanistan, somebody would have reached down and, and wanted to have a conversation. It's like Austin, you're doing well, you're progressing, you got great operational experience at all levels. Um, Every time you went to regimental duty, you deployed, you know, you're going to staff school. Not that there's promises of great things ahead, but 
you are one of one, you know, um, you move the needle when it comes to diversity. So, you know, obviously the choice is yours, but we'd love for you to stay in. We think there's great things ahead for you. You're, you know, you're a representative of the CAF and, you know, I think that would have been something that was worthwhile listening to, to whether I got out or not. All that to say, when I sent that letter, I think it was just appreciated by everyone. It's like, okay, got it. You know, the letter was pretty, not overly definitive and it wasn't, I was getting out for any negative reasons. It's, my terms of service are are up um, and I'm going to retire and, and move to the private sector. So it was Jim Sims was Costrap at the time. I think he, and he was the regimental, yeah, okay. regimental, I wouldn't say colonel, but the senior serving, I guess. So not senior serving, but. No, there's, yeah, they, they typically have like a, a one star in the army that has, <laughs> that's responsible for the, the different branches and regiments. And Correct. Yeah. yeah. So he's the one that got in a process and then Peter Devlin um, got it too. And, and, and they were very, you know, matter of fact about it, but n- not at one time that did they sort of pull me in for an office call to let's discuss and, and, uh, and are you sure? I, th- I think they just respected the decision and allowed me to push, push forward. My pair group is, you know, it's kind of funny because I think it, as majors, we're all kind of competing and we want to know what's next. And we're all a little bit good, but a little bit grumpy. Yeah. Understanding where the next carrot is and, you know, the Kayla Wars and the Bob Richies. And they're like, you know, you get the emails like, wow, like, good for you. You're not chasing the carrot. Right. Not that anybody's doing that consciously, but you understand it's part of a process of getting those jobs and doing the next thing and getting promoted. So, the ability to let go and uh, and for all instances be in charge of your own life and not have a career manager, I think is something we all kind of want a little bit, but we understand while you're in, you, you don't have that, right? It is, it is mission first and, and self and family a close second. So, you know, I think they saw a guy like me that was, did all the courses with them, recce and 2IC and OC, and they're like, wow, it's like he's going to Toronto. How could you let go of the ladder, right, or or the golden handcuffs? So, I think in my peer groups, they're all a bit reflective of: am I am I doing this for the right reasons? Am I staying in? And, and they all are, and they're awesome guys, and they're rock stars, and, and they are where I think they should be. Um, so that's all good. I'd say the most poignant part of me leaving on a good note is when I went back to get my uh, my MSM and had an army ball. I saw General Natinchuk there and, you know, he saw me in civilians and there was others, my counterparts on the artillery that was there in uniform still. And he quickly realized that it was no longer in the calf, right? And, you know, his his only words were, I'm so disappointed in a good, in a good way, right? right? But then quickly conscious and pivots, you know, it's like, thank you for your service, you know, um, amazing officer, glad you're with us. You know, I hope you've had a lasting impact, almost selling the forces back on me. To, you know, hopefully you're taking things that you need and left the things behind that you don't need and are going to have a strong, prosperous career in, in whatever you're doing. And hopefully if there's a story you need to tell about the calf, it's uh, it's positive. So hearing that, it's, you know, not, you know, because the other part of it can be, here's a guy we invested time in. Here's a guy we sent on this. And we gave him one of these coveted positions of commanding and gave him a position in Toronto. And now he's leaving. Like, what a waste, you know, and be very negative. And that could have a bad taste in my mouth, right? So guys like um, General Tinchuk, General Hillier, that sort of engaged me in a very positive way, left um, left a great impact. And, and my time in service was good. You know, 
95% of it, you know, when I reflect back now and there's things that, you know, would I have wanted them to go a bit differently? Would I have wanted to change for sure? But I wasn't armed to have that discussion, didn't know how to have it. Were there things I wish I'd done differently? Yes. But when we sort of talk, when we look to a bit of the future, didn't know how to do that at that time. But, you know, I think my time in service was, uh, was good was well respected by senior officers and, and it kind of helped in my transition. Even to this day, you know, I think I saw General Latinchuk maybe two years ago. I was coming out of, I think it was the Vimy dinner. So it probably was last year and I was leaving okay. out of the parking lot. And um, I saw him with his wife. And as you know, we see many general officers and it's like, I don't like that guy. I'm not going to move two feet out of my way to go say hi. <laughs> to go say hi. <laughs> right? And, and I'm sure people maybe say that about me. Um, and then there's like, there's General Attenshock. I'm going to cross a river and jump over a bridge and yeah. and take the effort to go say hi. So I, I said, hey, I haven't seen you in so long. just want to say hi. And, you know, once again, as, as, as he is enduring to his wife, he's like, can't remember his wife's name, but... Um, Leslie. Leslie. This is Austin Douglas, one of our great RCR officers, you know, a veteran of the Afghanistan war, did great things. He's retired and he's in, in industry. And he's once again blowing up my story in, in, a, in a great way. And, you know, I think for me, those are the engagements that make me feel good about my time in service, good about retiring, good about um, even to the state, trying to re-engage back with the CAF and, and give back in, in a meaningful way. Because the CAF is struggling in, in a number of areas. And I guess I could show up in one or two ways. Pile on. And there's stuff to pile on to, right, for sure. Um, or, you know, make sure the calf is uh, acutely aware of, of where they could probably use some help and use some change and helping instrument of that uh, that change as well. And, and I think you've been a, an active member in trying to uh, try to help the calf figure out this road yeah yeah i think you know so eleanor taylor you know brought her name up a couple of times uh, she was uh she was an oc with me in afghanistan um great friend right <clears throat> and i think as the calf struggled with culture and you know the me too movement and and um everything that's being brought to light with respect to sexual harassment that has taken place in the past. I think we know Eleanor's recent story of having a bit of internal conflict and, and resigning from the calf, you know, a very courageous step um, that I think she's trying to figure out to this day, because there is no right or wrong way to go about this. You know, a number of conversations with her about that journey and for those who don't know Eleanor Taylor, I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes that can uh, can help you learn a little bit about the story Austin's talking about right now. Yeah. So, so as Eleanor and I exchange stories, you know, I, I would talk to Eleanor about you know being an individual and you know race, and as we went through, um, I would say Black Lives Matter during COVID and you know, struggling with identity and, you know, there was a story that I always had in the background that, that I never spoke to. Right. And that's just a bit of my internal struggle and, and all that to say, not of, not all of it. And the majority of it isn't negative, but there's been a, 
There's been a story there for my time in service in the CAF, and it was folks like her and, and Colonel Jay Guinea, unless he's promoted now, um, that started having those conversations with me during COVID and saying, hey, Austin, I never really asked you about this, but, you know, how do you deal with race and, and starting to have that discussion um, and starting to feel a bit more open about sharing that sharing that dialogue, right, of, of, of life at RMC and life in the battalion, of being the only person of color at every unit I've went to on the officer side, for sure. So then, you know, in a conversation with Eleanor, as she's good at, um, you know, gave me the moral courage to, you know, she said, hey, you know, you should write a letter to General, uh, General Eyre, you know, talking about this, saying that you need his support to help the CAF with culture and diversity and share your story and see if you can participate in a useful way. And I'm like, Eleanor, why is he going to want to listen to me? Like, I don't even know if he even remembers me. I know, I know he does, but it's like, he's a busy guy. You know, he's not going to reply. She's like, you should send it. Of course, he knows who you are. Everybody knows who you are. You know, I, I think we're always a little bit self-deprecating of ourselves. So I bang out, you know, in the moment, bang out this letter to, uh, to, uh, to General Hilliard talking about, you know, my time and service. And I guess to, I sent you a copy of it, I think, but to streamline it, what I would say is, you know, Austin Douglas now, I kind of, okay, all the things that you think would make him successful. I stop, I turn back and I'm waiting to see this influx of black officers in the CAF and that are general officers. And, And same thing in industry where I've been now for 13 years and I turn around, I'm like, where is everybody? Right. I've, I've been on these media platforms and these marketing things. And, it, you know, I think what has impacted me is like, I don't know if I did anything to help. I think I was just helping myself in the moment. Right. And um, I wasn't very conscious of my path. And it's like, ugh, that's a bit disappointing. And it, and it kind of made the analogy of when you're golfing and you're on the tee box, you know, some holes look tight. It's like, how am I going to get to the green? It's like, I'm just worried about my golf shot. Right. And once you're on the green, you're like, oh, there's more space than I thought. And I made it and had a good journey, did a bunch of good things. You know, the calf gave me two degrees, gave me great opportunity, travel the world. And I look back and I'm like, looking at the golf course, everybody in the golf course is white and nobody looks like me. And I'm just a one of one. So all this, I kind of reflected that sentiment in a letter to, um, to General Lear. And um, to his credit, I was in his office a week later. You know, um, having a conversation because I think the letter ended with saying, you know, I'm looking for his endorsement to participate in, you know, CAF working groups and advisory boards, engage in leadership school, you know, participate in any way they find best to share my story, to share that, um, to share that message for someone else to hear and, and be a mentor to others so that I can, you know, be of more value, Right. Um, and he's a busy guy. He's got a thousand things going on, right? And and culture is on the top of them. So for him to take that time, definitely appreciated. Um, and he's helped me sort of navigate that path with other general officers in the CAF, General Carrion. Um, I had a series of meetings with the L1 Alphas, the, the general officers in the CAF, just to share that story. And it is a work in progress. It is It is difficult. It is... Not easy. I don't know if what I'm doing is right or wrong. There's no template. You know, I think part of me doing this is about sharing that message and letting others know that I'm available to talk to and to reach out to 
And after a small number of events that I did last February with Black History Month, you know, the response has been uh, better than I would have expected. I guess I do have a story to tell that is worth telling that I was not aware of. Um, so trying to just continue to, to navigate that, uh, that journey. But it's difficult, you know, in sharing that story, you know, and talking to the L and Alpha, so maybe let you explain what that means in sort of the the general cadre of uh, the calf. Yeah, when when Austin says L one Alpha, is what it what that means is so the army organizations that are, are a certain size and sit at a certain level in the hierarchy, like the army, the navy, the air force, are considered a level one, and then the 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 people who are the sort of second in command of those organizations, so the deputy commander of the army or the deputy commander of the the personnel command, um, that is the designation for their positions as L one alpha, sort of like the the second person in charge of that organization, and they do a lot of the day to day running of the yeah. organization. So having a conversation uh, about somebody's lived experience about diversity with those people is really important because they are the people who actually end up doing a lot of the implementation or the adjustment to the implementation based on new information or a new point of view. So it's really important to get their sort of, um, get their ears. Yeah. And, you know, Connor Mike was there, Pete Scott, Greg Smith, <clears throat> all Royals. And, um, I went and Royals, not as in oh, actual yeah. <laughs> Royals, but as in Royal well, Canadian regiment members or as, very yeah, close to the royalty. RCR might think as <laughs> actual royalty. You know, so like you know me as a you know easygoing guy, and, and even this conversation is is tough for me to ex- to expose myself that way. But all that said, I'm in that room, sharing that story, sharing a prepared script. You know, being a strong infantry officer, and it got emotional. Right? It's like I'm crying a bit, and Conrad's a bit emotional, and here's two guys that have been in Afghanistan, being the most tough guys you can think of right never breaking down in the in front of the uh in front of the troops but you know peace god greg conrad you know as they said in the meeting never once did i bring this up in the 20 years of service never once was i looking for accommodation or preferential treatment um you know and and i don't know if that was good in the end Right, maybe I should have asked for a bit of help or made it a bit of priority, but wasn't I wasn't armed for that discussion. I don't know if the calf was either. Um, I think they were doing that in the peripheries of diversity and growing the force and women in, in the forces, all all good things, but you know, never really conscious behavior of really driving through those uh, through those metrics. So, all that to say, sharing that story, sharing that message, and trying to get it out there. With the uh, with the decision makers and the people that need to understand that, and if I can share it at a human level, then they could, you know, maybe say to themselves, like this is this is a reality. You know, Austin, who I know and trust, has a story to share, and if it's definitely impacting him, of course it has to be impacting others, and and just trying to serve as um, a sounding board for uh, for everybody that I know in the calf. Um, and for those that I don't know, to know that there's a story that I'm willing to share in, in, in any venue, whether it's big, small, or, or in private. Yeah. Now, um, I'll, make an, I'll make an assumption here, or I'll maybe make a statement. You tell me if uh, I've got this right or wrong, but it, it seems like you've, you are balancing or you're trying to balance being a, uh, a, a helpful critic or being a critic of 
um, of the Canadian Armed Forces, of the military, in the ways that you you have experienced, but also whether it be because you know I, I know you're you know patriotic Canadian, but you're also in defense industry yeah. and you're trying to make things better, continuing to serve through your role in defense industry. So. How do you balance that? And again, I'm, I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying I'll make a statement and you tell me if it's true or not. But how are you balancing being a, a critic and trying to help in that way, but also being a, an ally and someone who believes in the, in the force? Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's a fair statement. I think, you know, for all of the struggles the CAF is having, um, I think it's a great organization. I think people should join, be a part of it. Lots to learn, but I think the CAF, as any organization, has room to grow. So I think there's three parts of Austin that uh, that show up. There's Austin, the, the individual that has a lot of thoughts, and um, and those probably come out very openly in in my peer group of friends that I grew up with, right? And you know, there's a term that would say people are, are code switching, right? The way I speak with my friends in the inner city and the slang I use can can be one way. I can fit into that ideology very easily. And then there's Austin, the veteran from the CAF that has the experience of the CAF and and um, is one of one as a as a colored officer um, going through school in the off in the in the RCR and you know experiences of things that were said in jest or some serious or some straight out, um, you know, racism, if you will. There's the Austin that navigates that part of it. And then there's the Austin in industry that looks around too and walks into a room and a conference like C4I, Sir and Beyond that we do at, uh, in Ottawa every year and, and walks into that room and notices that the room is all white, if you will, you know, and, and how do I navigate? And, and Austin in industry speaks on behalf of general dynamics mission systems if you will and that's a delicate balance because gd can sign up for some of what i want to say about culture and diversity but i don't want to sign up for all of what i have to say about culture and diversity so how do i navigate those paths delicately and the world of social media you don't have to you know you can you can just be you can just say something i don't want to say the word wrong but you, you can share an opinion that is looking to have a conversation but it can be misinterpreted and, and you can get, you know, there are consequences that for that that can be pretty catastrophic or they can be pretty benign. So I'm just trying to be very aware of how I navigate that, uh, navigate that path. But I guess to go back to the beginning, it's my goal is to hold the CAF um, accountable as well as industry accountable when it comes to culture and diversity and if you want more Austin Douglases in either of those organizations, not that there's any handouts, because I don't want any handouts. And I think my profile and my resume and my academics would show that I haven't been given any, but I never saw a general officer of color or a colonel of color for that matter. So I never knew it was attainable. I never knew what that looked like. I always thought that was something for somebody else. So, you know, there's got to be a conscious path to career managing um, in a fair, honest, and open way, the careers of everybody, but paying, paying careful attention if you want a force that is reflective as best you can of Canadian society. And there's just some hard structural problems with trying to get people of color uh, in the CAFs, some are from Montreal to, you know, 
go live a life in Gagetown or Penawala. It's not the first thing they would sign up for, right? right? Um, you know, going to the RMR, you know, on St. Catherine or the two, three field squadron in St. Ca- on St. Catherine Street behind, in Westmount. Those are easier attachments. So maybe you, you move reg force units to those locations and, and you start that way. Um, and same thing with industry. You know, they're in Canadian industry. I don't can't think of any VPs um, or presidents or few directors that are people of color in, in industry in, in Ottawa. That's for sure. So it's like, even as I navigate through and, if I want to become a VP or presence, like, how do I get there? Who's a mentor I can speak to? And how do I understand their path and their journey? And, you know, Austin, just keep your head down and like, you'll get there. Okay. But in sharing my story of diversity, you know, with friends that I have, they're colonels and one stars and two stars. Not everybody's in full agreement, right? Not everybody's a proponent of that, which is okay. Everybody is allowed to have it their, uh, their own way. You know, all that to say, there are some structural barriers to to that taking place with biases that people might have. And be like, "Awesome, look at you! You made it. You weren't given any special treatment." It's like, okay, but I'm one of one, and that can't be normal if we're trying to get diversity. And from what I understand from General Carrion, when I last spoke to her, I think there was only one flag officer of color in the CAF that was recently promoted, um, and like. That's just not a good number, right? And I know, I know the Army Commander is, you know, uh, Aboriginal, I, I believe, so comes from a, a diversity background there. Yep. But for me, it's like when we count them on one hand, it's like, well, you know, the Army Commander and we got this other person. It's like we got this three. I don't know what the number needs to be, but three is not it's it. Not <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's a good segue to, to maybe a, a story to to close things off because, I mean, you're talking about, you know, do I make a difference and, you know, mentorship and, uh, you know, the, the video of yeah. you at black history month. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's, that's really powerful. Maybe you can sort of give us a bit of a, uh, a reader's digest on, on that, that what happened yeah. there and, and that it, the impact of that on you. Yeah. So, you know, as part of my engagement with General Carrion, who was quick to, um, to uh, use my time as, as best she could. It, it, it was just timely that they were looking for a, a fourth panelist to participate in, uh, in Black History Month, which I think the CAF coined as the first national CAF, you know, Black History Month uh, initiative in, in, on, on a national platform, right? That, that, I, can, that I can remember. Yeah. yeah, where they took ownership of it and, and were very conscious of how they were going to roll it out. So, I get uh, asked to participate on this uh, panel with some, some very uh, smart, courageous uh, people that have a story similar to mine in, in different sector, private sector, and NCM, um, and uh, another lady that's the head of the CSE, Carolyn, can't remember her last name. So all that to say, you know, once again, tell my story there, you know, in, in a very humble way, just trying to get it out in front of a very, uh, a very large audience and it's you know it's a hard reflection of Austin the OC on top of the lav pointing and screaming and in charge of all his capacities to the telling the story that you do not tell often and, and trying to get it out so all that to say I, I tell this story and um it's Q&A from the uh, from the crowd but at one point one of the moderators um says I'd just like to interject and tell this quick story you know of how he struggled with uh, was with race as he navigated his way through the calf and he was talking about his time at uh, at basic training 
when I think we're all trying to figure out, is this the right career choice for me? And, and why am I here? And it's, and it's a rainy day. And I think yeah. that's um, regardless of color, everybody has that story. But for me and, and for him as well at the time, you know, what he reflected on was that, you know, being a person of color and sort of like one of one again, he couldn't let himself down, couldn't let him, his family down. And, and most importantly to him, he didn't want to let the um, the commanding officer down at the time who was, uh, who was a person of color. So he said, you know, on the mic, I'd just like to take this opportunity to uh, to thank that uh, commanding officer now, you know, um, Austin Douglas. So this whole time he's telling this great story. I'm like, oh, this is a great story. I wonder, great, I wonder who he's talking I about. I wonder who he's talking about, <laughs> right? And even the cameraman wasn't in on it because if you watch the video, the cameraman's trying to pan across and figure out who that was. So obviously he calls my name. There's a big sigh in the crowd because it's like very emotional. And I'm emotional trying to keep it together, you know, once again. And uh, he shakes my hand and, and continues to just close off the story by saying, you know, people are always paying attention and people are always noticing in you and, and how you move and how you talk and being sincere can have an impact one way or another. So that story resonated with him. And, you know, I sit back down in, in all my humility, just trying to soak it in and, and keep it together because all eyes are fixed on me in this auditorium now, right? Waiting for the tear to drop. And and I survive it barely and and move on. But, you know, it's stories like that that let allowed me to appreciate that. There is a story worth telling. It's uh it's it's hard to tell. It could be emotional. I held it together in this uh in this chat. But like like if we start talking about the troops that passed away or small moments, like it can go in a different direction pretty easily. Right. Um and when we start talking about race and and I'm trying to sort of survive in the daily moments, you know, it, it can it can uh, go different very easily. But trying to stay strong, trying to stay courageous, um, acknowledging every day that I am having an impact on others and, and trying to do that in forms like these, like I said, one on one, bigger up, bigger forms. Um, and, and I think at the end, I have to leverage the 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 ability and and access that others have, whether it's groups like TPL or general officers or general carry-on in, in their office, and keep keep them engaged to to continue that uh, conversation. Hey, Austin, this has been great, and I always end off every every podcast with a question on, uh, on uh, educate, uh, entertain, or uh, elevate. So uh, which one are you going to choose today? I think I'm going to go with uh, educate for 500. All right. <laughs> what do you got for educate for listeners? Yeah, for me in this journey, and thanks for the opportunity to, to speak to you. You know, it's, um, I think as we talked about, it's uh, how does Austin show up and what, what's the message he wants to uh, to share with you about his journey of service and, and what he's doing post-service. And it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act of what that message is and how much should you push out there. And, and it's an education for myself. And I reflect back to going to an event in Toronto with Aaron O'Toole as one of his uh, guests at the Black North Gala. I think it was in early January or February. But all that to say, there was a student, uh, Hannah Florist, and there's a link that I'll give you that you can probably grab on YouTube of a poem that she gave. It's a bit edited that she gave in Toronto, but it, it you know, everything that she said resonated with me. And I think for young black Canadians, especially, but for anybody for that matter, to go have a look at this poem, because I think when I heard it, it 
surmise exactly how I felt uh, in the moment and reflected back on my journey as an individual sort of growing up in Montreal to this day and, and how I struggle with it. I'll, I'll take the opportunity to read a couple of lines just to make everybody understand what I'm saying. So the first couple of lines of the poem go to the only black person in the room. It was simultaneously the most invisible and visibly distracting presence known to man. Learning the art of being black in a space is a process to carry out over a lifetime. You are the greatest balancing act to grace the tightrope, staying true to your identity while prioritizing the comfort of everybody else. Making yourself small to make others feel comfortable has become your second nature and first instinct. So I think when I look at those words, you know, all of them are true and uh, and nothing's wrong with them. But I, I think for me, it's, you know, we have to be ourselves. We have to tell our story, have others embrace it and, and have that discussion. There's no right or wrong to it, but I think it's worthwhile sharing and having that discussion. That's where we really get to a true place of understanding others and understanding how we all show up. So if people can go take a look at that uh, link, understand that message and share and have a discussion with someone of color or not, male, female, I think it's uh, worthwhile. Perfect. Thanks for being on the Northern Sentinels podcast, Austin. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You can find links to Austin's keynote for Black History Month, information on Eleanor Taylor, and his educate recommendation on the spoken word poem of Hannah Flores in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the NSP, and goodbye until next time. Thank you.